All right, men, let me uh, pull you back. Always hate to do that. I know the discussion can be so rich. Um, but there were a few things in the, in the study this week that uh, I don't think got up, brought all the way up to the surface, so I want to make sure that we're seeing them, that we're gleaning from them properly. Um, I do want to commend, again, Jen Wilkin for the way she has prepared this study this week. I think, I think she did a great job of helping us uh, dig into the offerings of Cain and Abel and trying to understand exactly why uh, Cain's was not regarded by the Lord and why Abel's was. Uh, I think it's a really big uh, uh, truth that, that's worth exploring in our lives. Unfortunately, today I'm not going to get a chance to get into all that. As I was preparing this week, I, I thought to myself, this could be three or four sermons. I mean, the, the, the things that are brought to the surface in this account of Cain and Abel are, are pretty... Uh, pretty big and, and pretty uh, impactful on our lives today. Um, so I'm going to leave that one because I do think she did a very adequate job of helping us see that in Scripture. Um, if you want to ask some of those questions, uh, if you have some of those, come and see me later. But, um, but yeah, we'll focus on some other things. Let me pray first, though, and then we'll, we'll dive in. God, I just pray over this next uh, 25 minutes. Lord, I pray that you would guide our time. I pray that you would um, allow me to speak what is true. I, I pray that the uh, the reality of sin that we see on display in this, um, in, in this book, in, in this, this account of Cain and Abel, Lord, uh, that we would inspect it and inspect our lives in light of it, Lord, that we would not be uh, careless or cautious with how sin operates, um, that we would see in Cain ourselves, we would see our own hearts, and we would see the ways that uh, Satan can tempt us along the exact same lines to do very similar things today, Lord, would would um, you awaken us perhaps from a, from a slumber, from a sleepiness um, when it comes to sin and its effects? And, and uh, would, would that uh, awakeness create an alertness and a, and, a, and a fight, Lord, a holy fight in us against sin and what it can do to us? So I guide our time and um, we give it to you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right. So um, here in chapter four, we are catching our first glimpse of life after the fall. So uh, as you know, if you've been studying this, this the whole time, if you've been tracking the story, God created a perfect cosmos. Last week, everything fell apart as um, Adam and Eve chose with the one tiny little area where they could have sinned. I mean, they could have they had freedom, such abundant freedom handed to God, and, and yet they chose to rebel against God's rule over them. Um, they used their dominion, their rule, their sub-rule to rebel against the ultimate ruler. It was, it was a very tragic reality. You saw that. Um, but in mercy, God didn't just kill them immediately. I mean, death is coming forth. Um, they're not going to live forever. They're not going to get to enjoy perfect communion with God there in the garden anymore. Uh, there were consequences to sin. We saw that last week. But, but God gives mercy. And I even think Jim did a great job pointing this out. But, uh, and thank you for teaching last week, Jim. But uh, it's mercy where God uh, kicks them out of the garden. You know, he, he doesn't want them to continue to eat. Some, uh, I would say, very liberal commentators would say that that was God feeling threatened by mankind and that he had to protect himself. And that's a complete misunderstanding of who God is, who we are. There's never a threat that we do to God. God has never experienced a threat in any kind. Um, no, it's mercy. It's not allowing mankind to live forever in a state of sin. He's creating a limit to their sin by casting them out and not allowing them to uh, persist for all time in a, in a state of evil. If, if our hearts you know, have this evil in us and we had no restrictions on that, that would be a 
really bad world. So um, all that to be said, uh, God gives mercy in the, in the realm of that fall. And then here in chapter 4, we're seeing our first real picture of life after the fall, um, what it looks like uh, as life continues on the other side of Eden, outside of Eden's gates. Um, and we see the next generation born. Cain and Abel come forth um, out of Adam and Eve. Um, they go about their calling outside of Eden. They begin to express dominion on the earth. They begin to worship God outside of Eden. Um, and tragically, but, but I think unsurprisingly, uh, sin shows up outside of Eden as well. So um, that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, looking at sin and, and sort of the, uh, the picture of sin that, that this chapter in the Bible gives us. Um, but before we get to that, I want to make just three quick observations uh, about sort of what's playing out here after the fall that I think are significant. Um, this is not fill in the blanks on, on your sheet, but just some, some things I wanted to point out quickly. Um, God's blessing of mankind does persevere after the flaw, uh, after the fall. Um, I'm not going to get a chance to go through all the themes that we've been tracking today. I want to, for sake of time, skip that. Um, but I do want to point out God's blessing that He gave to mankind hasn't ended. He didn't throw away the blessing. Even amidst the cursing that He did of sin, the judgment He gives to sin, He still blesses mankind. And you know that because Adam and Eve are bearing children. Remember back in chapter 1, verse 28, when He made them male and female and He blessed them, that blessing was immediately followed by a purpose for them. They were to be fruitful and multiply. His blessing on them was to be a blessing of multiplication of human life that would spread and fill the whole earth and, and take the image of God, the glory of God everywhere. Um, and He has not withheld that blessing from them. Though they've sinned, though they've experienced judgment, though they've been cursed because of sin, they are still experiencing the blessing of God. Um, he's not withdrawn His hand. Also, His presence with mankind persists after the fall. I don't know that I've ever noticed this before, um, but did you notice that, that uh, Cain and Abel are able to bring their offerings to the Lord? And there's interactions with the Lord. He's able to express regard for Abel's offering. He's able to uh, not express regard for Cain's. Uh, he's able to speak with Cain as Cain's dealing with sin here. I mean, there's, there's real presence being experienced. I don't think it's as intimate as it was before, uh, before the fall. Um, a lot of commentators try to, try to understand what this looked like. Perhaps um, they're kicked out of Eden, but perhaps they're still close. You know, here's the cherubim, the, the flaming sword kicking them out, but per, and perhaps God is still inside, but perhaps... Perhaps Adam and Eve are able to bring their, their offerings um, and Cain and Abel up to the gate and stand there by the, be reminded of the consequences of their sin, but still experience God's presence up close. We don't know. It's speculation on that point, but regardless, we see God's presence persisting. It's great grace in the face of their sin, even after the fall. And, and then the third thing, uh, life after the fall, God's purpose for mankind still perseveres as well. So this dominion mandate that He had given as the purpose for them to live, that they're to fill the earth, subdue it, enter creation, and harness the, the raw material of God's creation and utilize it for the benefit and flourishing of mankind, that remains. You know, Abel is a, a keeper of the sheep, we're told. Cain is a, a worker of the ground. They are going and expressing their dominion and doing the thing that God created them to do. Um, which is a really good thing. They're, they're working, they're sweating. It's not as easy as it would have been before the fall. You know, uh, that dominion was cursed in the fall itself. They're now going to sweat as they do this labor, um, but they are laboring. God's purpose for them has persisted. And not just work, but also worship shows up here, uh, which was always going to be a part of God's plan. Um, he, he wanted them to fill the earth so that the image of God would fill the earth, so the glory of God would fill the earth as the waters covered the seas. Um, you know, this, was, this is God's purpose, um, and they are living that out. Even after the fall, they're able to worship God, bring these offerings, um, and glorify His name, uh, which just reminds us life is more than work. <laughs> you know, God created the structures of, of work and family in the garden, 
Um, but life is more than that. It's more than just your family. It's more than just work. It's, it's about worshiping God and living with that purpose in us. So, um, but tragically, you know, in addition to all these things that, that continued after the fall, sin continues as well. Uh, for the first time in Scripture, the word sin shows up here in chapter 4. Um, and with that, I think we are catching an enormous insight into how sin operates, what it looks like, and, and this is where I want to focus in. So four, four things, four glimpses of sin that we see here that I want you to see. Number one, sin always starts small. We are given in chapter 4 of Genesis a glimpse of sin's life cycle. And, and we see where it ends. You know, it ends in this explosion of anger from Cain towards Abel. He murders him. The first homicide occurs in Scripture. Um, the first murder, blood is, is spilt. Not a blood of sacrifice, but a blood of killing. Um, but where did it start? It started way back there in verse 5 when, uh, you know, unregarded by the Lord for his offering, Cain becomes angry. And it says his face falls. And a thought enters his mind. I don't like my brother. I, I, I don't really want to spend time with him anymore. I kind of wish he were dead. And at that point, it's just a thought. Like, he, he's, maybe he's even dreaming, daydreaming about killing his brother. But he wouldn't do it yet. It's just, it's just a small little thought in his mind. And yet it's there. And like a little seed that's been planted... It begins to be something he dwells upon. It begins to be something that grows. Um, and eventually it, it comes and brings forth uh, death into his life. Um, I, I think this is a perfect picture of how sin always works in our life. It always starts small. It does not start off in the full form. And this is part of Satan's purpose in temptation. He knows you're not going to be tempted by the big thing. He knows he has to get you there and lure you there like a, like a crafts, you know, a, a great fisherman. He has to uh, bring you along the path, and, and, and he knows he's a sneaky little snake. He knows um, how to lure you there with something small that you would do, something small that you're willing to contemplate, something small that you're willing to entertain in your mind and loop over in your mind. Um, and sin does not, st- once it starts, it doesn't stop there. It starts small, but it doesn't end small. It reminds me of that, that age-old age old, um, adage that I heard in church growing up. Perhaps you heard this as well. Um, sin always takes you further than you want to go. It keeps you longer than you want to stay, and it costs you more than you want to pay. Um, that is exactly what we see playing out here, and we would never choose it if we could see what it looks like at the end, at the beginning. At the beginning, it's alluring because of its smallness, because it feels like it's no big deal. This is exactly how it works. Satan makes us think it doesn't matter, and he lures us into um, and entices us into it. James teaches us this. This is exactly what we see in James chapter 1. If you're familiar with this passage, um, James, the brother of Jesus, explaining this life cycle of sin, explaining how it plays out in in our life. He says, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, key word there, gives birth to sin, And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. He's saying there's a gestation period for sin. It starts with this desire. And it may not be nine months, but there's like a a life cycle of sin where it's not, it hasn't birthed out into sin yet. It's just desire. It's just enticing thoughts in your mind. But if you don't kill it there, if you don't put it to death there, it will grow and eventually give birth to real sin in the world around you. Absolutely what happens with Cain and Abel. And eventually, when it's full grown, what happens? It brings forth death. I mean, it's, it's, it's exactly what happens, um, but it goes uh, to, to the point I'm trying to make here, which is that sin starts small. Um, 
So towards that end, you know, here at, at this moment, I want to draw your attention to your own hearts for a moment. Like, think about your lives, man. Some of you are flirting with sin right now. Some of you are in this life cycle of sin, and you're not, not to the end yet. You're, you're sort of in the beginning somewhere where you're, you're living out James chapter 1. This is you currently. You're, you're thinking about something. It's wrong, but it's not too wrong. Swirling around in your mind. Perhaps you're flirting with a woman at work, or you're thinking about flirting with a woman at work, and it's just words. Nothing has happened. You tell yourself that nothing ever will happen, but you know there's something there. Or maybe it's you know drinking more than you should. Life has been stressful and it's just a way to help me fall asleep it's just a little nightcap but you know down deep in your heart that it's a little more than you need it's a dependency it's starting to grow into something that it wasn't before or perhaps you're looking at pornography it's just a glimpse you know, just a quick little search it's not interrupting my work day it's not interrupting my marriage nobody knows it's happening it's not hurting anybody it's just me alone Satan's just got you convinced that it's not a big deal and what I want you to see here, without any doubt, is that's how it always starts. It is a big deal. Start small. Brings us to the second point we see here. Uh, it doesn't stay that way. Sin wants to kill you. Its desire is not to remain some small part of your life, but to rule you, to control you, to dominate over you, to have dominion over your heart, and ultimately to kill you. It's like a little house cat that you, you know... You, you think you want to play with, but in reality, it's a lion, and it'll, want, it'll eat your face off. That's what it's going to do. And I think like the, the lion or the tiger imagery is so perfect, specifically because of how God speaks to, to Cain in this life cycle of sin. Look at verse 7, if you, if you have your, your passage open there. Um, God intervenes in the midst of the sin cycle that Cain is walking through, which is such abundant grace. Like Praise God that He's willing to speak to us when we're in our, our sin patterns. Which is why all of you need to make sure that you are in the Word on, on a daily basis in your life, that you are in church, that you don't go through seasons where sports become more important, where work becomes more important, where you just sort of withdraw. Family, you need to have open ears to, to the Lord. And He, through His Spirit, through His Word, He will speak to you. He will interrupt the sin cycle. He'll, he'll give you the words that you need to hear. He might be doing that this exact morning, but, but this is what He does with Cain. And He tells them the sacred warning, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule it. The, the word there, contrary, is uh, the same word uh, when, when God gives the curse to Adam and Eve, and He says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Uh, the word there, your, the desire will be for your husband, is the same word as, as here. Sin, sin will, sin's desiring to have you. It's desiring to control you. It's desiring to dominate you. Um, it, it has no intention of remaining small. It has a life of its own. It's demonic in form, and it wants to enslave you and ruin you. Sin always promises to satisfy. When it's small and it's tempting and Satan's alluring you into it, you think it's going to be great. You think it's going to be comforting. You think it's going to satisfy you in some ways, but it can never deliver on that satisfaction it offers. It is not satisfying. It, it may satisfy for the most fleeting of moments, but after that comes this overwhelming shame, this overwhelming consequence. The, the, the problems of sin immediately show up. I actually see this in um, Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Uh, God speaking through Jeremiah to the people of Israel, He says, My people have committed two evils. Two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and then they've gone and hewn out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. So they're not drinking from me that will satisfy their soul, and they keep going to these other things that they think will hold water, 
they think will satisfy them. They think they'll drink from it and be satisfied and quenched way down deep in their soul, and yet it can't even hold water. Family, that's sin. It's like a mirage. You think you're, you're drinking something that will satisfy, and you end up with a mouthful of sand. There's nothing there. Talk to anyone who's gone down the path of adultery and ask them, was it worth it? Did, did your life get better? Did that help your marriage? Did that help your relationship with your kids? Did that fulfill your soul? Maybe for two minutes or a whole hour, you were satisfied. But after that, it's awful. Family, this is what sin does. It promises to satisfy, but it can't. It, it destroys your life. You were made to be satisfied in God. And there's nothing, hear me, there is nothing outside of God's lines for you, His law, His commands for you, that will ever satisfy you. Sin can't. God's rigged the game. It, it won't. You may think, oh no, it'll, it'll work. God doesn't understand. No, it won't. It can't. God made you for Him. And it gives you the rules so that you can enjoy Him. That woman, that alcohol, that decision, whatever it is in your life, family, it's a chocolate-covered grenade, as Pastor Anson says. You get through the chocolate, and then there's horror. Which brings us to the third thing we see here. Sin must be mastered. <clears throat> God gives Cain an incredible insight at the end of verse 7 that I think we need to hear and let it sink deep into our hearts. His desire is contrary to you. It wants to master you. It wants to dominate you. But you must rule over it. Sin must be mastered by you. It wants to master us. But we are called by God as image bearers to master it, which is really big. Like, I almost want to, I know we have our four themes that we've been tracking. I almost want to add a fifth and call it dominion because I think it's so significant the way God is, is establishing rule in the hands of mankind in Genesis. And one of the things that you are meant to rule is your own hearts and your own sin nature. Men, you are not called to uh, just let the desires of your heart steer you. You are called to steer them. You are called to rule over your heart and rule over your desires and look at some of them and say no. This is, this is part of the dominion that God's given us to master our sin. We're called to wage a holy war against it, a jihad against it. I mean, we're watching what's playing out in Israel and in the Gaza Strip right now and, and, and we're rem remembering what... Muslims are taught by the Quran to wage in jihad, this holy war against their enemies, and it's awful, it's dark, it's, it's, a, it's oppressive, but we're, we're called to our own holy war. It's not against others, it's against ourselves, our sin nature within us. But that's, we're called to wage war. Christians of old uh, used to call this the mortification of the flesh. If you go read old books, they talked about this a lot. In our day, it's not in vogue. In our day, it's follow your heart, be, find yourself, follow, follow yourself. But in the old days, Christians knew what is true, which is what the Bible teaches. You've got to kill some things inside of you. Mortify, put to death what is evil inside of you so that it doesn't kill you first. It's desires to rule you, you must rule it. Um, maybe my favorite Puritan, one of my favorite old theologians of time, John Owen, he has a whole book on this that's fantastic. We did a book study on it a few years ago. I'm tempted to bring it back um, and do it again. It is one of the best books on on crucifying the flesh and putting sin to death in all of, of um, Christendom. But uh, his famous quote is this, be killing sin or it will be killing, killing you. There's no passive state. There's no peace treaty with sin. There's no uh, passivity that you're allowed to give in this part of your life. God has not 
Even in salvation, He doesn't take away your temptations. He doesn't take away all your sinful desires. You will still struggle with desires for sin for the rest of your life, which means that you must fight your sin for the rest of your life. We are called to rule over it. And it's all over the New Testament. I'm I'm tempted to develop this in a very big way, but I'll just show you a few very quickly. Galatians 5 is one of the places. It gets to the end of Galatians 5. That's where the fruits of the Spirit show up. Um, Fruits of the flesh are right before the fruits of the Spirit. But in 16 and 17, he says this, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There's a war inside of you. You have flesh, you have spirit. There's this this conflict between uh, the desires you have in your life that are holy and the desires you have that that are evil. There's war playing out. And then he tells us in other places what to do with that. Romans 8 is one of them. So then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. We are called to do some self killing, some putting to death inside of us spiritually. Rule over sin. Put to death what is evil within you. Colossians uses that exact phrase. Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Family, this is what our world needs to hear. Not follow your heart. Do what you want. If sin If fighting sin feels unsustainable, just give in to it and and follow along. God will understand. No, God calls you to fight. He calls you to put to death. He calls you to draw a line in the sand and and wage war. And you may not be perfect. You may fall again and again and again, which is why the blood of Jesus was spilt to to cover you. Paul, in Romans chapter 7, he he goes on this long tirade about uh, talking about how frustrating this battle against sin can be. We're called into this fight for dominion, but it's exhausting sometimes. If any of you have actually really waged war against your sin, you know this. It is exhausting. It won't go away easily. It doesn't go away without a fight. And it's, it's tiresome. And Paul says this, I keep doing what I don't want to do. I, I, I know in my heart, I delight in the law of God, and yet I find myself in my, in my flesh doing things I don't want to do. I'm a divided man. Who is this divided man, he says. And then he gets to, uh, he even concludes with this, this haunting phrase, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. And then he gets right into chapter 8, and he, he says those amazing words, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which means that in Jesus, we fight from victory. We, his blood is over us. We know one day it will all be taken away. We will be made perfect, but we must fight in this age. In victory, under the blood, there's no condemnation. When you fall, God does not throw you out of His hand. You're still in His hand. No condemnation for you, but you must fight. This is what the Bible calls us to. Sin must be mastered. Brings us to number four. Fourth point we see here about sin. Sin left unchecked will destroy you. This is very similar to number two. Um, But number two, sin wants to kill you, is getting at the the intent of sin, its distinct desire to, to destroy you. And, and number four is getting at the inevitable end that will come um, if it's unchecked. If you don't wage war, if you don't master sin, it will destroy you. I would love to, to make the last point of this little message, you know, that, that sin is defeated through repentance and faith, which is true. But unfortunately, that's not what plays out in Genesis chapter 4. You know, we are not given a story about a man who fought his sin, a man who repented of his sin, a man who came to his 
Lord and offered sacrifices of repentance and said, God, fix me of this. I need help. Instead, we're given a, a, a picture of a man who was hardened in his sin, refused to give it up, and allowed it to destroy his life. That's exactly what happens. You, you see this anger, this, these thoughts of sin that are in his heart eventually pounce on his brother in the field. He kills his brother, and then the consequences of sin are just enormous. Half of this passage we read this week is all just sort of talking through God's consequences of sin for them. And, and it underscores the point. Sin left unchecked will destroy you. It wants to kill you, and if you don't express dominion over it, it will do just that. Look what happens. He, he kills his brother, and then uh, we're told uh, that the consequences of that amplify beyond the curses of Genesis 3. You get two curses in Genesis 3, and now you get a third curse. There were three blessings in Genesis 1 and 2. God blessing His creation three times, and now we're cursed three times. So at the end of Genesis 4, really at the end of the passage we were this week, you have seen the complete undoing of God's blessing in a, in a sense. Um, and then next week we'll see how bad it gets in light of that. But, but in this one, look, the ground was uh, cursed because of sin in chapter 3, but now Cain himself is cursed from the ground. The ground will not yield its strength to Cain anymore. It was already going to be hard to, to work um, when the ground was cursed, but now Cain is cursed as well, and it's never he's, he's going to be a hungry man, is what this says. He might, he might get some crops, but they're going to be tiny little crops. That corn, that ear of corn is just mangled. I mean, God is, uh, is really laying it on hard in this area of dominion and purpose that, that uh, Cain was given. Um, and then on top of that, he's going to be a wanderer and a fugitive on the earth. He's cast not just out of Eden, but now he's cast out of this proximity to Eden, and he has to go off by himself. Um, and if that seems like a small deal, just you know, let Cain's words, his reaction to this, help you remember how, how great this is. He says, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Heed his words, family, so it is always the case with sin. It will take you further than you want to go. It will cost you more than you want to pay. It will keep you longer than you want to stay. Left unchecked, this is what it does. It starts small, but it wants to kill you, and if you don't master it, it will do just that. Wake up. Don't be blind. Don't be unknowledged about how this plays out in your life. Yet, I do think there's hope given here. Not in Cain and what he does, but I see it in a few different places. First, the shed blood of Abel. What does it do? We're told it does something. It cries out. It's weird. What does that even mean? Blood crying out for vengeance. Blood crying out for justice. That's interesting. And then also interesting to me is God's refusal to let that vengeance fall on Cain's head. It's almost like God steps between the cry for justice and the one who deserves to die and doesn't let the justice fall on Cain. He protects Cain. That's crazy. It doesn't actually make any sense whatsoever. Cain deserves to die in this moment. But blood revenge is not permitted. I'm not going to kill you, and no one else is allowed to kill you too. I will mark you to make sure no one kills you. He gives grace to, to Cain. And though <clears throat> Abel's blood is speaking and crying out for justice, God shows forbearance. He shows a patience in giving justice. And I think all this points us ultimately to Christ. This is where you know, the hope is found always. It's pointing us to the New Testament where justice is fully and finally dealt with in Jesus. Where all the sin through the ages and all the injustice of all time that's been crying out for vengeance, crying out for justice, uh, will fully be dealt with through Jesus. Who deals with it in two ways. First, He dealt with it on the cross. Romans 3 says He 
uh, became a propitiation by his blood uh, to be received by faith to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So in Christ he stopped passing over injustice. He poured out the wrath of injustice on Jesus and Jesus took it. For all who believe in Jesus, he propitiates the, the voice of the blood through the ages. Through his blood, he quiets it. Blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's what he did. That's the first way he did it. The second way is exactly what we talked about on Sunday. Jesus will come again with fire to deal with the rest of the injustice. There's no escaping justice. There's forbearance and patience for a time. There's eternal justice found under the cross, eternal forgiveness under Christ. But one day it will finally come in full family. Sin is destructive, but Jesus is utterly redemptive. He can save to the uttermost all who come to him. So, in conclusion... If I could sum up everything I'm saying in one little sentence, family, it's this. Sin is not a game. It starts small, but it wants to kill you, and God calls you to master it. So if you're flirting with sin in some area of your life, stop. I plead with you, stop. For the sake of your soul, for the sake of our church, for the sake of your family, put it to death. If you need help, come talk to us. We would love to be brothers at arms, a band of brothers waging war against sin in your life. Don't let it destroy you. It will. Wage a holy war. You are called to be masters of the earth, rulers over creation and rulers of your heart. Let the Lord do that. Let's pray. God, we love you. It's a hard word, but Father, I pray a timely one. I pray that your word would strike our hearts in the ways it needs to. And for any man in this room who is struggling in some pattern of sin, some life cycle of sin, maybe it's small, maybe it's big, but they're not talking about it and they're not bringing it to the light, Lord. Would you help them see here in Genesis 4 what will ultimately happen if they don't bring it forward, if they don't begin to fight, if they don't get some brothers at arms to help them wage a holy war. Lord, let not your men be destroyed. Let not your men be dominated. Lord, let us express dominion. Don't let us be ruled. Don't let us be enslaved. Let us be rulers. You've called us to be your rulers on the earth to bring your glory everywhere. Help us to wage this war and fulfill our purpose. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. You're dismissed. See you at the corn maze tonight.